Morning, Village Church. I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village. I'm glad to be with you this morning. Um, can I just begin by saying, what a weekend. Is this incredible? You know, where, you know where they're not having a weekend like this in January? Franklin, Tennessee. Austin, Texas. Boise, Idaho. Like if you live there and you're still watching right now, you're not having a weekend like this. It's amazing. Can we just get that out of the way? Oh my gosh, it's so good. Yeah, someone was clapping. We're like, yeah, that's what we are. That's where we, that's where we live. That's why we pay our taxes, right? For days like this. All right, so um, if you're a guest with us, we're uh, doing a series in the Gospel of Luke. We're calling Jesus is the One. And this morning we're talking about this idea that Jesus is the one who is anointed. Jesus is the one who is anointed. And if you're a Christian, you've been around the church a long time, you know what that word anointed means. If you're newer to the church or newer to this church and they don't use words like that of the church you came from, um, the word anointed is in the Bible a lot. It's, 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 it's sort of a, maybe it's a scary word, it's not a scary word. It just literally means to be set apart. To be set apart for something or to be empowered for something. And in the Bible, Jesus is the anointed one. As you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are people that are anointed by God. But Jesus is the anointed one. He is the one who's been set apart by God to do something that no one else could do except for Jesus. That no one else could accomplish except for Jesus. And we'll get to that at the end of our time together this morning. But we are, in a sense, the anointed ones as Christians, that God's Spirit has been placed on us as well, actually in us as well. We'll talk about that later. But let's talk about Jesus, because that's what this is about. Anointing literally means appointing, in a sense. That God appoints people for certain things, and he empowers them for those things. So think in your mind right now like a cabinet member uh, in government or an ambassador. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks to the Corinthians and says, you are ambassadors for Christ. He tells them that you have the power, the authority of Christ in that place that you are. That was actually the, um, that was the verse that was on the, it was airbrushed on the bottom of my first surfboard. Um, I had that there to remind myself when I was in the water that wherever I was, I was an ambassador for Christ. I was there for him. And so, as I said, we'll talk about ourselves a little bit later. Let's talk about Jesus, the anointed one. We're going to learn a few things about him this morning or be reminded about a few things this morning. I think most of us know. The first one is this, that Jesus is the one who is anointed and everybody knew it. And everybody still knows it. There's something about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the central person in human history and everyone knows that. There's no dispute about that. Jesus is the anointed one. He's the one who's anointed by God, and everybody knows it. We see that in verses 14 to 15, where it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught them in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit, and it's a very empowering thing. If you weren't with us in the last few weeks, we talked about Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation And this idea that Jesus was was filled with the Holy Spirit of God, he was led by the Holy Spirit of God, he resisted temptation with the Holy Spirit of God and by the power of the Spirit. And you know what? That's a very empowering thing. Jesus was fully filled, fully led, and perfectly empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, and that is a very empowering thing. Think about your life. And think about the times in your life where you know I'm filled with the Spirit of God and I'm being led, you're confident, I'm being led by the Spirit of God. And you're resisting temptation 
not earning your salvation, but you are resisting temptation. You're not trying to prove anything to God. You're just trying to be faithful to God. It's a season where you're resisting temptation more than you had in the past. You see the fruit of the Spirit at work in your life. And that is a very empowering place to be. Not a prideful place to be. But there's a kind of Christ confidence that we have when we're living and walking in step with the Spirit, it's a very empowering place to be. Jesus was perfectly empowered by God, perfectly empowered to be in that place, and he walked it out perfectly. And I want to say we are also perfectly anointed by God the way Jesus is. We just, we just don't always walk it out quite perfectly, do we? But we do the best that we can by the grace of God to be filled with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to resist temptation by the Spirit, and then to be led into the things that God has set us apart for, that God has anointed us for. We'll talk about that a little bit more this morning. So Jesus is the anointed one, and everyone knew it. The reports are going out about him everywhere. you got to see this guy. No one's ever taught like him. No one's ever said the things he said. No one's ever done the things he's done. Everyone's beginning to come and see him. Everyone knows he is the one that's set apart by God. He is the one that's been empowered by God. We're going to find something else this morning in verse 16 where it says, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus went to church, and he stood up to read. And here we're going to see that Jesus is the anointed one who started walking in his anointing close to home. And I'm just going to spend a moment here because I think there's a point worth making, but we're going to see in a moment that this didn't quite work out the way we might expect. <laughs> Jesus goes back to his hometown, and he doesn't quite get the welcome that we might expect that he would get. We'll see that in a moment. But, <clears throat> but I love Jesus' heart. I love Jesus' heart. I love his desire. I love God's plan before the foundation of the world to have Jesus start at home. Because I think there's something in this for us here as well. That when we sense that God has set us apart for something, that he's called us to something in particular. And I want you to begin thinking about that. If you know what that is for you or if you have an inkling of what that might be for you, I, I want you to start thinking about that right now in this part of our morning together. But when we're called to something and we know it, when we feel like God's kind of called us, set us apart for something in particular, he's empowering us for something in particular, there is a temptation sometime to go like, well, where can I go to do that? And especially if you're a young person, I want to tell you, the place to do that is at home. And if you're a man and you feel like, oh, I'm called to do this big thing for God, you know where the place to start is? In your house. Like the place to start when God anoints you, sets you apart, empowers you for something is in your house. It's with your friends. It's with your family. It's with your church. And if you're in this church, I believe it's with this church. If you believe God's called you to something, and I'm going to give you some incredible examples, not, not of my life, from the lives of people in this church at the end of our time together. There are people in our church that are called to amazing things in this church, but they've started here in this place. And this is the way that that often happens, and I think it's the way it should happen. As was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Jesus did this. So should we start where we are at home. So Jesus was anointed by God and everybody knew it. But what was Jesus anointed for? What was Jesus set apart by God for? What was he empowered by the Spirit of God for? Well, we see that in verses 17 to 21. And the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it's written. Isn't it amazing in God's providence? It's right here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I just wanted to make a side note here that in things in our life and things in our calling, we should be grounded in scripture. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Dean and I chose it for our son Luke. It's his life verse is wrapped up in this section of scripture. And I couldn't be more excited to talk about it this morning. But when, when you have things in your life, like your children are born, and you have scriptures that you pray over them, like we do here on child dedication mornings, or you sense that God's calling you to something, he's anointed you for something, he's inviting you into something, you ground that in scripture. And it's always a helpful thing to do. When I was um, ordained as a pastor, there was a, a scripture out of 1 Timothy 4 that, that really grounded me. And that was where I came back over and over again. You know, teach these things. Exhort this way. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But be an example in word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. Give your attention to doctrine and to teaching and the public reading of scripture, which is why we do this. There's some very specific things I knew God called me to. And whenever I doubt the things that I believe God set me apart for, I go back to that scripture. Or when I came to the Village Church with a, a group of you 15 years ago, and we came to help replant and revitalize this church, the scripture was Titus 1.5. This is the reason I've left you in Crete, that you might set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I've commanded you. And every time I've doubted, am I supposed to be here? Is this really what you've called me to? I go back to that scripture. I'm just telling you, you should ground your calling in scripture. You should ground the things that you believe God's set you apart for in scripture. And isn't it amazing that Jesus gets to ground it right here, and then he says, now, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm not saying that about myself, by the way. It might be scriptures for me, and maybe you wouldn't say the same for you, but you would ground your sense of being set apart by God in those scriptures. So what did Jesus say he was anointed for? Proclaim the good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, Liberty to those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you know, uh, many people hear these things, and they say, well, that's amazing. What an amazing calling Jesus has. What an amazing thing that he's been set apart by God for, to, to help bring good news to the poor, because the poor need good news, and to help those who are wrongfully imprisoned because people are wrongfully imprisoned all over the world and to help cure the most common diseases. There were so many people that were blind in Jesus' day to help get free medical care out to people, to, to help do things like that, to help the marginalized people around the world, those who are oppressed, and to help tell people that God is for you and to help encourage people that God is with you, God sees you, God is for you. What an amazing calling to say things like that. What would be the reaction that people would have to someone saying they're called to something like this? Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this Joseph's son? You know, they lived in a day like we did where there was a lot of oppression and there were a lot of people that were marginalized and there were a lot of abuses by government and in culture. There was financial systems that were corrupt they were experiencing a lot of the same things that we are today. And so an initial reaction could be like, yes, we need all of those things. We, we need good news spoken to the poor because there are a lot of people that are poor and marginalized. And we need the people that are falsely imprisoned or held captive to be released. And we need the people that are marginalized and oppressed on the sidelines of society to, to be made right and made whole. And we need the, the, the blind to see because we need medical cures for people that don't have you know, access to good health care. And we need all of those things. And I think if you articulate your 
calling or your sense of anointing in contemporary social justice language, everyone will speak well of you. Everyone will marvel. Everyone will say, oh, yes, we need that. And isn't it amazing that people see the needs of people around them? And I want to say, Jesus was definitely anointed by God to address social ills, 100%. But he was anointed for, for much, much, much more than that. And Jesus knew that. And so when Jesus read from the scriptures in Isaiah, and he says, to proclaim the good news to the poor, that word poor is actually spiritually poor. That Jesus calling, Jesus anointing, Jesus was set apart by God to tell humanity, you're spiritually poor, and you need to be made rich toward God. That you're, you're held captive by sin, and you need to be released. That you're spiritually blind and you can't see God. You, you need your eyes spiritually opened. You're oppressed by sin and by Satan, and you need to be released from your oppression. And you're not at favor with God. You're actually at enmity with God. God opposes you, but there is a way to be made right with God. It's the good news. It's the gospel of the kingdom Jesus proclaimed, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming to proclaim much more than his ministry towards social ills. Jesus is the one who was anointed, we're finding, to tell us the truth about our relationship with God. Again, that we're spiritually poor and we need to be made spiritually rich toward God. That we're spiritually bound and we need to be set free. That we're spiritually blind and we need to see. That we're spiritually oppressed and we need to be released. And that we're not at favor with God in our natural state. God is actually opposed to us. We're opposed to him. But there's a way to be reconciled to God and be made right with our relationship with him. Now listen, Jesus intuitively knows how they're going to respond to this. <laughs> Jesus intuitively knows, maybe you would intuitively know how, how the average person would respond to this. Jesus intuitively knows how they're going to respond to this. And so he actually tells them in advance how they're going to respond. Look at verse 23. He says, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote this proverb, quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard that you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus tells them, listen, in a moment you're going to have an emotional response, but you're going to mask it with a rational response. You're going to have an emotional response to the things I'm telling you, but you're going to mask it with a, a rational response. You're going to say things like, we need to see more. You did the miracles here. We need to see them in front of us, right? I need some more evidence. I need a, a better argument. I need, to, I need to observe it myself. I need to test this myself. I need some empirical evidence, right? There was already enough evidence in all that Jesus had already done and all the reports that were going out. This is not a large place in the world. This is, this is a small place where people know each other and they go and begin to share the stories and masses and masses of people are saying, listen to what Jesus is saying. Listen to what Jesus is doing. The evidence is all there. Their excuse is we need to see it here as well. The truth is they don't want to admit that they're spiritually poor and blind and bound and they're gonna get angry about it. Because that's what human beings do. That's what we as human beings do. When, when someone tells us that we're sinners in need of a savior, it, it, it kind of gets at us. In, inside, we get angry about that idea. I'm, I'm, don't call me a sinner. Don't tell me we, we get upset about those kinds of things and that's what they're gonna do. And people's reaction to hard spiritual truth, especially from people they know the best, is pretty predictable. They're not gonna respond well. 
And Jesus says it this way. He said to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You can take this to the bank. People have a hard time hearing hard truth from people that are close to them. People have a hard time hearing hard truth from people that are close to them, especially about spiritual things. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced like you're close to someone and you want to tell them the truth about the gospel, but you have to tell them the hard truth. You have to tell them the bad news before you tell them the good news. And you get to the bad news and it's like, I'm trying to say it as softly, as humbly, as gently as I can. The bad news is that you're a sinner in need of a savior, but the good news is Jesus and you share the gospel, but they're just angry. They're just upset, only grit their teeth because inside, on the inside, you can tell they're gritting their teeth at you because they just don't want to hear the sinner part. Everyone loves to hear the savior part, but they don't want to admit they need actually a savior. This is a predictable response. So Jesus gives them a couple of historical examples to help illustrate the point that he's making. Maybe like you and I, we'd say, well, it's kind of like this or it's kind of like that. You want to give some examples. And I will say that it's been said the Bible doesn't tell us what happened. The Bible tells us what always happens. You hear that? When you read your Bible, the Bible doesn't tell us just what happened. It tells us what always happens, it's been said. We, we, hear, that we, we hear what's going to happen in the future by what has happened in the past. We actually understand what's going to happen next. Jesus knows this. So he's saying, I'm going to go back in history, give you a couple history examples, and then this is going to illustrate how you're going to respond. So the first one is in Luke chapter, uh, well, first one starts in verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, and the heavens were shut up in three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. This is in 1 Kings 17. There was a widow, if you know the story, she's gathering sticks. She's so poor and destitute. She's gathering sticks to make a fire so she can have a, she's got a little bit of bread, a bread, dough left. She's going to make a little cake for her and for her son, and then they're going to die. And Elijah shows up and he says, hey, don't worry. Um, go get your stuff, get your sticks, make it. But first, make a cake for me first. And then make one for you, and then make one for your son. And don't worry, like, you're, you're never going to lack flour. And this woman has faith, and she does it. She's at the end of her rope. She's got enough for two cakes. She's going to eat it, and her and her son are going to die, and she knows it. But yet she believes and has faith, and she trusts what he says to her. She has absolute faith, even though she has absolute poverty. These people that Jesus is talking to have no faith. They're spiritually poor. Second example, verse 27, and there were many lepers in the times uh, of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but Naaman the Syrian, the Syrian commander who was cured of leprosy. And if you know the story, you know um, Naaman's in initial reaction was, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go wash in the river. I'm important, and I should do something important to get my cleansing. He wanted to do something to kind of earn it. Isn't that familiar? This is what people do. We want to earn our cleansing from God until he's convinced that his he can't do that, and so he should humble himself. And so he actually does humble himself, and he goes and washes in the river seven times, like Elisha tells him, and he's healed of his leprosy. And we see this picture again of, of someone who eventually humbles himself before God. These people would not do that. So what kind of reaction to these hard-hitting examples, or what kind of hard-hitting truths do they have? Pretty predictable, verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue, so they'll be like all of you guys, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of town. They brought him to the brow of a hill to which their town was built on so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's just say um, they were a little upset, right? 
they were treating Jesus like he was a person that had mental health issues, or they were treating Jesus like he was a person that was filled with a demon. And in their day, that's how you dealt with a person like that. You would throw them off the cliff. Let me just pause and say, um, not to be too dramatic, but this seems to be the way people want to treat Christians today when they tell them the truth. You're like, you guys are nuts. You, we need to get rid of you. You're telling everyone that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life. There's no way to the Father except through him. We're like, we're not saying that. We're just saying that Jesus says that. So, yes, I guess we are saying it because Jesus said it, right? Like, so, so, but that's not popular today. That's not palatable today. And so if you haven't noticed, they're trying to marginalize Christians, marginalize that message, push you out. I don't want to say push you off a cliff physically, but just any means possible to get rid of Jesus. And in that day, it was pushing him off a cliff. And today, it's canceling you on social media or taking away your rights to do this or that or just push you to the side. Any means possible to stop talking about this reality that we are sinners in need of a Savior. But God protected Jesus. He persevered. He continued on, and he will do the same for us. So God protects Jesus so he could actually start living out his calling. So he could start doing the five things he said he was anointed by God to do. And the following stories illustrate this for us. First example we see in verses 31 and 32. He went out to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his words possessed authority, proclaiming the good news to the poor, and proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is preaching the gospel, and he's telling people that through the truth of the gospel of the kingdom, they can be made right with God. This is why his teaching has authority, because the other teaching that they were receiving was like, if you do these things, you can earn favor with God. If you do these things, you can be made right with God. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 there's a totally different way. It's the way of the kingdom. You can be made right with God through faith. It's what he does for you, not what you do for him. And that's the only kind of teaching that has this kind of authority. And you know that. You've heard teaching that is just principles for how to live a better life. And you're like, yeah, you could get that anywhere. But when someone points you to Jesus and points you to the truth of the gospel, that's the kind of teaching that has authority in our lives. That's the kind of teaching that has authority in my life. I know that as a Christian. This is what they're experiencing. Second example it starts in verse 33. And in this synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him out down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Liberty to the captives and liberty to the oppressed. Jesus is literally walking out the things. He says, I'm anointed to bring liberty to captives. People who are captive by sin and Satan, who are oppressed by the enemy, who are oppressed by spiritually dark things. That's what I have come to do, to set people at liberty. I just want to say this is still happening today. I've heard it said there's been this analogy that, that we as people, we kind of think of a home. We, we open the doors and we open the windows of our, of our home and we just, we just allow all kinds of things in. You know, on a day like today, a beautiful day in January in Orange County, you might want to open your windows, you might want to open your door, you might want to get that cross breeze flowing through your house. You're like, oh, this is amazing, you know. And there are oftentimes people do that unwittingly spiritually. They're like, oh, this is so fun, this is so great, you know, doing this is so great, and being with this person is so wonderful, and, you know, following this person on social media, and, you know, and then they open the walls and windows, uh, windows and doors of their, their house, and they're like, oh, this just feels so great, and, and, and all sorts of horrible things rush in and fill that house. 
And there are a lot of people today that are influenced by really spiritually dark things and they have no idea. We have all kinds of other little trite names for it. I'm just going to tell you it's demonic. It's dark and it's demonic. People's lives are filled with things that are demonic, that are against God, that are against Christ and the things of God. And we willingly just open our lives to it. Oh, this is so great. No, it's not. It's not. Jesus has come to set us free from those things. Amen? Well, what's the initial reaction to this kind of stuff? Verse 36 and 37. They were all amazed. And they said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him, here it is again, went out to every place in the surrounding region. What's the initial reaction? They are amazed. The, the word literally means they've lost their minds. They, they can't believe it. They're in shock. The word literally amazed, it means they're in shock. They're in shock. They've never heard something like this before. They've never heard teaching like this. And this isn't the way it is when we come to Christ, isn't it? Sometimes we're just, we're in shock. We're like, wait, what, what, what do you mean? We don't have to earn our way to God that Jesus has done it for us? We're at shock. We're like, what? That can't be true. It is true. We'll get into that in a moment. They're in shock. He gives a few more examples. The next one is kind of a micro and macro. We'll start with the micro, verses uh, 38 and 39, sort of the, the micro view of what's going on here. He arose and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose, and she began to serve them. Again, liberty of the captives and liberty of the oppressed. This word rebuked is the same word that is used in the next instance on the macro level of, of, of rebuking demons. And I think there is this idea here that not always, but often enough, there is a spiritual connection to some of the physical ailments that we have. And I don't want to dive too deep into this. I just want to say I, I, I believe that sometimes there's a connection. The connection is this. I think the enemy uses those things as handholds. I think the enemy exploits those things. I think that demonic demonic forces, I think they, 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 they grab onto those health things that we struggle with sometimes and they exploit them and they use them to demoralize us and they use them to create doubt and fear and it's like a handhold. You know, if you've ever rock climbed before, you know there's, there's handholds and you have to grab the right one and once you grab one, it's like you're locked in and, and they get locked in on those handholds in our lives sometimes and I think that's, that's part of what's going on here. Peter's mother-in-law gets gets sick and Jesus rebukes it in a way that rebukes demons. Something spiritual is connected to that. And I think potentially that's because Simon's mother-in-law, her calling, her anointing, what she has been set apart by God for is to show hospitality because after she's healed, she gets up and she begins to serve them again. And I just want to say, you know, last night, Dean and I were at dinner um, at the home of one of our partners and we just showed up for like, you know, just a normal sort of dinner, and I brought like an average bottle of wine as a thank you, you know, and I was like, hey, and then, and then we're like, whoa, we're, we're just, you know, we're eating this beautiful charcuterie thing and this amazing pasta dish, and then there's this like huge like piece of meat came out of the sous vide and like went into the pizza oven and got seared, and I was like, whoa, you know, and I was like, you know, it was amazing. The hospitality was amazing. 
And I'm so glad to hear from them even so many stories about people in our church that have shown such amazing hospitality to them. And that that's one of our values of the Village Church is hospitality. But I would say that's no small thing. Can I just pause and say, it's not a small thing. I saw someone this morning and they said, yeah, that was the thing that kept us at the Village Church was the hospitality. Everyone's walked by me this morning and said, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Village Church, you're doing a great job with hospitality. People are seeing that. That is not a small thing. That's something that God's anointed and called people to. Some people are called to speaking giftings. Other people are called to serving giftings. This is where the Apostle Peter breaks up spiritual gifts, serving and speaking. Some of these serving giftings are particular to hospitality, and I think that's what we're seeing here. And I just want to say, if that's all that you sense you're set apart by God for and empowered by God for, that is enough. It's amazing. Hospitality opens people's hearts up to God. Continue to do it in an increasing measure. All right, now the, now the sorry, I, I, I like hospitality. I get excited about food, you know, all the good stuff, all that good warm time with people. I'm like wishing I was still there. All right, I mean, I'm glad to be with you, but okay, here we go. All right, on the, on the macro level now, verses 40, 41. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you're the son of God. But he rebuked them. There's that same word again. And would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Again, he was sent to bring in liberty to captives and liberty to the oppressed. When Jesus rebukes the demons, he says, don't, don't say that I'm the Christ. He wants to stop that because Jesus knows his anointing. He knows what he's set apart by God for. He knows what he's called by God to. He knows but he knows it's not yet time for the cross. He says, hey, be quiet. One last example. Jesus reinforces the main part of his mission. The main thing that Jesus is called to. We, what's the main thing Jesus was anointed by God for? We get it actually in verses 42 to 44. And when it was day, he departed and he went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But... He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea, proclaiming the gospel to the poor and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. This was the main thing that Jesus was called to do. The main thing that Jesus was called to do was not to heal physical ailments, although he did, and he does, I believe. The main calling that Jesus had was not to solve social ills and to get the marginalized people sort of into the center of society, although Jesus does, and he still does. The main thing Jesus was anointed by God for was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. For I was sent for this purpose, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And so this morning, the main thing that Jesus was anointed for in this was the proclamation of the gospel. And if you're not yet a Christian, let me just tell you what the main thing is. The main thing is that Jesus was set apart by God. Jesus is the anointed one, the Bible says. He is the one that was set apart by God and empowered by God to be our Savior. Jesus Christ literally means that. Christ means the anointed one. Jesus means God is salvation. Jesus is the anointed one who brings the salvation of God to people that are in sin. See, the Bible teaches that, that although in the beginning God created us free from sin, that we actually chose to sin in the garden when our first parents 
decided to give in to temptation rather than resist it like Jesus did, as we saw last week. And ever since then, we just give in to everything, <laughs> all kinds of temptations all the time. We said last week, kind of tongue-in-cheek, we can resist anything but temptation, and that is true. We give in to all these things. And that, that sin separates us from, from God. It breaks our relationship with people. But the Bible teaches God wasn't content to leave us in that place, that he would send his son, that he would send Jesus Christ to live a perfectly sinless life on our behalf. That's what we're seeing today. But then Jesus would not only live a sinless life on our behalf, he would die a sinner's death, our death, on the cross and in our place and for our sins. That Jesus would take the judgment of God towards sin on himself. Jesus would raise from death three days later to prove who he said he was, if he hadn't proven it enough already. And then when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in him, we can be forgiven of our sin because of what Jesus has done for us, not trying to earn our washing like Naaman. And we can be forgiven for our sin and free. The li liberty to captives, right? Liberty to the oppressed. We can be free to live the life that God had in mind for us from the beginning, a life in relationship with him. And if you're not yet a Christian, that's the good news, that Jesus walked in his anointing all the way to and through the cross so that we too can be anointed by him and for him. That Jesus lived that sinless life, died that substitutionary death, rose from death to prove it so we can place our faith, our hope, and trust in him. We can be saved from our sin and we can be anointed by God, set apart by God for something in particular as well. You know, Luke wrote the book of Luke, but he also wrote the next book, the book of Acts. And what we see in the book of Acts is that just as the Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism, the Spirit comes upon Jesus' people. The Holy Spirit comes upon the believers at Pentecost and empowers them for the ministry that God has set them apart for. And so it's as if Luke is telling us in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is the anointed one, and he's set apart by God for something special to proclaim the gospel to the poor, mainly. And that we too, in the Gospel of Acts, he's telling us that the Spirit of God comes on us and that God sets us apart. God anoints us. He sets us apart for something in particular. He calls us to something in particular. He wants to empower us for something in particular. There's a main thing for all of us. Now, there are things for all of us as Christians, to be sure. We are all called to be filled with the Spirit and walk in the fruits of the Spirit. Amen? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're all called to those things. But we're also called to some pretty unique things. And part of this has to do with our spiritual gifting. In the Apprentice Academy right now, we're talking about this. We're, we're in the middle, like a little section on biblical counseling, but we're right in the middle of spiritual gifts. And a lot of that has to do with our spiritual gifting. But I, in the beginning of our time together this morning, I told you, I wanted you to start thinking about maybe something that you believe God's setting you apart for, God's calling you into, something that he's anointing you for and setting you apart for and empowering you for. And in this moment, I want you to think about not just your spiritual giftings, but all kinds of things in your life. And I've talked about this before, and I won't spend much time on it this morning. If you're a village partner, I'm going to send an exercise to you this week that we do in the Apprentice Academy on spiritual DNA. And it's this little model. It's probably hard to see on the screen. And so, again, I'll be sending it to you. Don't, don't worry. But, but you, you, take your, you start with your favorite attribute of God, and that really tells you something about about maybe how you relate to God. And then you take sort of your favorite Bible verse and your Bible character, and then you talk about, you take mentors that were in your life, and you take your spiritual gifts and some of your natural gifts, and you kind of take some of the major moments and milestones in your life, and, and you take some of the dreams that you have, and, and you kind of do this exercise where you take all the things that God has providentially allowed 
and provided for in your life, and, and you try to, try to discern how God is moving in your life, what he's directing you to. And it's an incredible exercise, and it's, um, it's really fun to see kind of people come alive and go, yeah, no, I always thought God wanted me to do this thing, and I can't wait to do that, and I just need a little direction. And so this morning, um, I want to ask you to respond in a couple of ways, and I want to ask you, do you have a sense of what you're anointed by God for? Do you have a sense this morning that, that God has set you apart for something in particular? That God is empowering you for something in particular? You know, our church is filled with people like this that are, that are discovering these things. I'm thinking this week about um, Peter Shia. Peter and Liz left for a, a three-week trip to Taiwan. Peter's on a connecting. Many of you have met Peter when you come into our church. He's like the first one you'll meet. Um, Peter um, is like a serial entrepreneur. Like he, he does amazing things and helps build and sell companies. And, but he's been getting into biblical counseling, you know, and he's, he's, he's taken a course over the last 18 months. And he just did, along with Jaron, a biblical counseling session for our Apprentice Academy, and he killed it. And he's, he's like, well, how am I going to do this more? And I can just tell you, Peter is, is set apart by God, and God is empowering him to become a biblical counselor. It's just as clear as day. I can see that. It's happening right in front of us. You know, it's just so easy to see. Our leaders in our church, you know, Mike Langdon is one of my neighbors. He's also one of our pastors. And Mike has signed up for a 22-week class on relational evangelism through search ministries. And so this year, he's going to spend 22 weeks with hours of reading and projects every, every week to, do, to learn more about what I think he and Amanda already do so well. They're like, they're Jedis at relational evangelism. But they're gonna continue to grow in that. And Mike is committed, one of, our, one of your pastors is committed to 22 weeks because he knows God has set him apart for that and he wants to be more equipped for it. I respect that, I love that about the leaders in our church. I'm looking at the back and I'm looking at the herrings right now, Peter and Michelle. And, you know, um, during COVID, we were outside, and I did a sermon on, out of Nehemiah, and um, I said, hey, if you sense God's calling you to something, kind of like I am this morning in particular, I want you to come and talk to me. I want to help, help you with that. I want to help you. If God's put something on your heart like he has on Nehemiah's. And Peter was the only one in our church. I mean, I'm not dissing the rest of you. I'm just saying, like, no, I, I'm not offended in any way. But Peter came. He was one, the one guy who came and said, hey, it, there's this thing. So Peter and I met at Whole Foods maybe that week or a couple weeks later, and we had a little lunch, and he told me, like, I want to end human trafficking. And lo and behold, a few years later, like, there's an organization now they founded, and they're having a fundraiser this spring, and they're, they're, they're moving. And he's doing some stuff with his profession as an attorney. Like, it is so clear that God has anointed him and them. God has empowered them toward that end. I see Victoria Castle right here. And, and just knowing something about the Castle story and, and the Embrace Grace ministry. And, and they're like, I, it's as clear as day that Daniel and Victoria are supposed to, to, to have, you know, kind of a right to life influence and, and influencing people that, that uh, are single moms and caring for them. And it's just as clear as day that God's anointed them, set them apart for that thing. He's empowering them for that ministry. Look, I could go on. The Village Church is filled with these kinds of people. How do, we, how do we recognize and call that out in a community of people? And speaking of the book of Acts, I was thinking, I was praying this week, Lord, how do, how do we do this? What do I do? I don't want to be weird. I just want to be, I just want to be open. Like, how do we call this stuff out? How do we, 
And I felt like the Lord impressed on me Acts chapter 13. It says, and they were in the church at Antioch. There's no slide for this. Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so they're in kind of some kind of prayer and worship meeting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. It was curious to me. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. How did the Holy Spirit say that? I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea. I, I have no idea how the Holy Spirit said that. Did, did, did the Holy Spirit speak to all of the kind of elders or leaders and say at the same time, and they said, oh, yeah, and then they were whispering to each other during the prayer, and they knew, or did a light shine on them, like, oh, you know, it's like came down on them, or like what, what happened? Or maybe it was just that Barnabas and Saul knew within themselves, and the rest of the church just sort of affirmed it. Maybe Barnabas and Saul said, yeah, we think we're supposed to go do this thing. And then they, they said, yeah, we want to affirm that. We believe God's anointed us for this. And he's empowering us for this. And the rest of the church has said, yeah. So, again, I don't want to be weird. I just, I just want, to, I want to be faithful. You know, I, I sense that I'm supposed to kind of help you have a moment this morning where you can affirm that for yourself. I want to tell you that um, in the book of Luke, there are seven places. Bowman res re reminded the Apprentice Academy of this as we talked about the Holy Spirit in the Apprentice Academy this week, actually. There are seven places in the Gospel of Luke where there's a major transition for Jesus, and every single time the Holy Spirit's present, and this is one of them. Matter of fact, this is a major one, Luke chapter 4. Every time there's a major transition in the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, seven times, good number, the Holy Spirit is always present. And so this morning, what I want to do is, I, I've kind of been debating the way I want to do this. I, I think what I want to do is just say, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them. If you sense that the Holy Spirit is setting you apart for something, and he wants to empower you for a particular work, for something specific. I gave some examples of people in the life of our church this morning. I just want to ask you to stand, because I want to pray for you. I want to see you, because I want to help you. And also, I want the people in our church to see you because I want them to see you and I want them to come alongside you. It might be people in your community group or it might be someone you would never expect, but I want the rest of the people in our church to see, oh, that person senses this morning that God's setting them apart for something specific and in particular. And if you know it, I, I, want, I want you to stand and I want you to recognize it. And I would say this to you that are young. If you're a young person, a youth group student, or if you're a college student this morning, I wanna say, um, you might not know completely what it is yet, I believe Jesus started this at age 12 when he was in the temple. And now Jesus is age 30, and I'll tell you right now, I remember my 30th birthday, if you're a young person, I can tell you that when you're about 30 years old, you're comfortable in your own skin, you know this a little bit more. You don't know exactly what it is in the moment, but if you're young, a college student, a high school student, a youth group student, at this point, you just have some inklings of what it is. That was true of Jesus at age 12. By age 30, he knew exactly what it was. And it might take you some time but I want to encourage you, if you don't know exactly what it is, but you have a sense that there's something that God's doing, and you're a young person, I want you to stand as well. Because we want to see you. We want to help you. I can't imagine a church that there is that you could get more help in. There are some incredible people in this church. If you feel like God's calling you to something, there are so many people in this church that would be like, what do you need? Just tell us what you need. We're there. 
So if that's you, if you sense God's setting you apart for something in particular, will you just stand for a moment? And I want to pray for you. Awesome. That's a pretty cool cross-section, huh? Look around. Good. I want to help create a moment for you, kind of like a, a seven things in the Gospel of Luke that you would know this morning would be kind of a pivot morning for you, a, a point where everyone recognizes that God's inviting you into something. So I want you guys to look around. Matter of fact, can someone take a picture of this? I don't, I, again, I don't mean to be weird. I said that three times. I, can, can, I just want to make sure I know who's all standing here. All right. Um, to make this less awkward, we'll bow and pray, and I'll pray, and someone will take a picture while I'm praying. Will that be good? That's be good. I want to pray for all of you. And then I want you to, that around these people, if you know these people, you need to go to them after church. It's not normal fellowship this morning. It's not donuts and coffee. It's like you need to go to these people, okay? All right. Lord, you're so good and you're so kind to us to invite us into the things that you're doing. Thank you for setting us apart and calling us to yourself. And you give us even more than that, as if there's, there's nothing more than we need than that. We just need you. We need your salvation. But you're so good and you're so kind that you've actually set us apart and anointed us, empowered us for particular things. And I pray for the people that are standing here this morning, our friends, our partners, our brothers and sisters, that they would have a sense this morning that your Holy Spirit is on them and that your Holy Spirit is anointing them. Your Holy Spirit actually indwells them and is going to empower them for this thing. I pray that they have that overwhelming sense from you this morning that we as a church could come alongside and help continue to affirm and confirm these things for them. And pray this morning that they would feel empowered by your spirit in a unique way, that this would be a morning where they're committing, saying, I know that you're calling me to this, and I don't know what all of it means yet. It might take years to unfold, but I want to start. And I pray that you would empower them for these things, for your glory, and we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.